the Biden administration has to choose. Who is going to speak the loudest here? Whose interests are going to be served? The farm worker families who are doing the work now in the during the pandemic of providing this country with the food that it needs to eat, or growers whose basic interest is basically having a labor supply that is as low cost as possible. Hello and welcome back to the Oakland Institute podcast. I'm Andy Kerr and will be your host for today's episode as we turn our focus back to the U.S. and examine the watershed moment we are currently in with regards to immigration policy and the rights of farm workers. Today we are very fortunate to be joined by David Bacon. In addition to being a senior fellow at the Oakland Institute, David is a writer and photojournalist with decades of experience covering labor, immigration, and international politics. A former labor organizer for unions with predominantly immigrant workers, David brings a unique perspective into changing conditions in the workforce, the impact of the global economy and migration, and how these factors influence the struggle for workers' rights. So David will break down some of the major findings of his recently released report, Dignity or Exploitation, What Future for Farm Worker Families in the United States, available now on the Oakland Institute website. At the heart of the report looms this question. The choice confronting the Biden administration is whether to expand an immigration program prioritizing grower profits over workers' and immigrants' rights, or instead to reinforce the immigration system based on family reunification and community stability while protecting the wages, rights, health, and housing of farm workers, the alternative advanced by the civil rights movement over half a century ago. To understand the consequences of this decision for the nation's farm workers, it will be useful to get into some of the background and historical context that the, revo- that the report provides. Welcome, David. Let's jump right in. Can you start by giving a brief overview of the H-2A worker program and its impact on farm worker rights? The H-2A program is a program under which um, U.S. growers are able to recruit workers in Mexico and bring them to the United States on work visas that severely restrict people's labor rights um, and their uh, human rights generally. The H-2A program is actually the inheritor of the old Brazero program. Um, It's not exactly the same as that program was, which the U.S. had um, in arrangement with Mexico from 1942 to 1964, but it has most of the same features and its purpose is the same. And that is to supply labor to U.S. growers at a cost that U.S. growers want to pay. So the whole setup of the H-2A program is um, organized in a way that controls the labor cost for growers of having this recruited workforce, and that also creates a vulnerable workforce that is much less likely and able to organize and um, fight for something better. And so how do the rules of the H-2A program differ from some of the other labor standards that would govern um, other farm workers in the U.S.? So the rules of the program say that the grower has to be certified by the Department of Labor to bring a set number of workers to the US. Um, Then usually what happens is that a grower contracts with a labor contractor who in turn contracts with a recruiter in Mexico, um, recruits those workers, and those workers come to the US under a visa. That's what the H-2A is, it's the name of the visa. And those workers um, come to the US and they have to work for the employer that brings them 
and they are limited to a, um, a contract that is less than one year long. So at the end of that period, um, they have to return to Mexico. They can't bring their families with them. Um, the court decisions have allowed growers to discriminate and to, to ignore US anti-discrimination laws. So for instance, there are almost no women who come as H-2A workers. Growers are permitted to employ only men. Um, and they are permitted to discriminate on the basis of age because grower, what growers are looking for are young men who can work really hard and um, basically under the kind of pressure to produce that growers exert on people, especially during harvest time. And so growers are not interested in having older workers. And that would be a violation under US law. But again, um, court decisions have allowed this program to ignore um, those basic labor rights. Um, the, there are requirements for wages. Um, supposedly in order to prevent growers from using these workers in competition with farm workers who are already living in the United States. Um, growers have to pay what's called an adverse effect wage rate, which means a wage rate that won't undermine the wages of other farm workers. Unfortunately, what this really means is that um, the, these wage rates, these regulated wage rates are only very slightly above minimum wage because minimum wage is the wage for farm work um, in the United States. And so it essentially it puts a cap on farm worker wages. Um, growers are required to um, offer jobs to workers who are in the US first, which is a requirement that basically growers laugh at. Um, then they're required to provide housing and transportation. Um, that has become the subject of a lot of struggle and controversy, especially during the pandemic, because growers are providing barracks-based housing, what's called congregate housing, in which workers are sleeping in bunk beds in rooms which have them close together. In other words, they can't maintain a social distance of six feet from each other. Right. And as a result of that, we are seeing, especially in Washington where this problem has become the most acute, we are seeing um, concentrations of the breakout of the coronavirus among workers who are living um, in those, in this kind of congregate housing in these barracks to the point where um, one large grower, um, Gibbers, um, in central Washington had two workers die this summer, essentially because they were infected because of the way in which they were housed. Um, so these are kind of the rules of the program, but they all essentially function in the interests of growers and to the detriment of the workers. I definitely want to come back to the impact of the pandemic on farm workers, uh, especially those under the H-2A program. Um, but before that, so the rationale with the H-2A program is that it allows recruitment of workers by a grower who demonstrates it can't find people to hire locally. Uh, but in practice, has this, is this how the program has functioned? That's not how the program functions. In fact, first of all, unemployment in rural areas in California, for instance, in Washington state and in the US generally is much higher than it is in urban areas. So um, at the beginning of this year before the pandemic, um, the unemployment rate in the Imperial Valley, right next to the border with Mexico, big 
lettuce growing area was 15%. Um, in Merced County, which is in the middle of the Central Valley, um, unemployment was 10%, over 10%. At the same time in Los Angeles, it was 4%. And in San Francisco, it, will, it was less than 3%. Um, so, and this was um, during a period in which there was actually work um, for workers. Mm -hmm. um, in periods of um, in-between harvest, for instance, um, the unemployment rate shoots up even, even more than that. So the idea that there are no workers is um, it's just simply not true. There are workers. The problem is that they, um, there are workers who growers might have to attract by paying um, more reasonable wages, for instance. Um, if growers provided higher wages and medical plans and the other benefits that people in urban areas um, expect, they wouldn't have problems attracting people to work in the fields. The problem is that what growers want to do is maintain the existing wage structure the existing cost of labor, and at the same time, have a, a ready supply of workers. And so their solution to this is to reach across the border into Mexico and bring up workers who can be contracted at this set wage, um, in which growers have a predictable low wage that they have to pay, and who will also disappear after the harvest is over. In other words, these are people without families here in the United States. Of course, they have families in Mexico that they're trying to support with these wages, but here in the US, they don't have families. So growers don't have to pay for any of the social costs of the existing labor force. For farm workers who are living here in the United States um, with families, of course, people have children, they go to school and people um, need hospitals and they need medical care because they get sick sometimes and people need the same array of social services that any community in the US needs. And that imposes a social cost the growers don't want to pay. And so the H-2A program allows them to get this labor force at a very low cost without having to worry about the social impact. And of course, the other advantage to growers is that this is a workforce um, that is so restricted in terms of its rights that growers, generally speaking, with some exceptions, don't have to worry about workers trying to organize unions, for instance, or to protest or to do things that might raise that wage level. And because this program has been so beneficial to growers, um, it's been expanded over the past few decades. Could you speak a little bit about how the program has grown um, from where it started to where it is now? Sure. Well, just um, in terms of the history, the Bracero program, which was the predecessor of, that pro of the H-2A program ended in 1965. And in 1965, um, two very significant things happened. One was that um, the grape strike started in Delano, California, which was the birth of the United Farm Workers Union. Um, and that happened very consciously. Workers went out on strike the year that they knew that growers could no longer get braceros to replace them um, during a strike. Um, but the other thing that happened was that Congress passed um, the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. And that set in place a system for migration to the United States that was based on families, the family preference system, rather than that previous system, which was essentially a labor supply system for growers. However, um, the, the change in the law did not actually abolish 
the visa that was used by growers to bring Braceros to the US, the so-called H visa. And in 1986, in the Immigration Reform and Control Act, that visa was modified and became what we know today as the H-2A visa. Um, however, at that time, growers were very um, uh, dependent on, first of all, the existing workforce who were already living in the United States, and then also a flow of undocumented people across the border who also were people who um, growers could pressure to work at low wages because of their lack of legal status. So at first, the H-2A visa was not very well used. Um, at the beginning of the 90s, for instance, um, 1992, there were only 10,000 people who were brought to the United States. Um, 10,000 is a big number, but the total farm, farm labor workforce in the United States is about two and a half million. So you can see it was a very small percentage of it. Um, under Clinton, it rose to about you know, 50, 60,000 people a year, um, Clinton and then Bush as well. Um, but under um, George Bush Jr. and then under Obama, the program really started to grow. And last year, there were about 250,000, over 250,000 certifications issued by the Department of Labor to growers for visas to bring um, H-2A workers to the United States. So that is now a quarter, uh, I'm sorry, that is now 10% of the entire farm labor workforce in this country. In some states, um, like Washington, like Georgia, the percentage of H-2A workers has risen to represent over a quarter and as much as a third of the workforce, and it is rising very, very quickly. So you can see that just statistically what's happening is that at least a certain part of the farm labor workforce in this country has already been replaced by H-2A workers. And the number of workers who are involved in this is, is rising very quickly every year. And so what's the relationship between the expansion of the H-2A program uh, and deportations, because uh, you know deportations get a lot of attention. So it, it, it's not exactly known, I think, to everyone what the relationship between these two um, things might be. There is a very direct relationship between the wave of deportations and the um, bringing of workers in from Mexico and other countries as well, but Mexico being the primary um, primary one. And this is very old. It goes all the way back to the Bracero program. Um, people might remember the song, Deportee, Woody Guthrie's song about the crash of an airplane in the Central Valley that was carrying people back to the border. Um, and these were workers who at that time that the song was written, um, who were undocumented, who were being sent back to the border, deported in other words, and who would then be recycled at the border and then come back to the same ranches even where they had been working before, but as Bracero workers under that contract labor system. Um, so it got to the point where in 1954, the US deported over a million people. And on um, that same year um, brought in about 450,000 Braceros. So you can sort of see that the deportation and the bringing of people are happening concurrently at the same time. And in fact, there were um, immigrant rights activists and farm worker activists of that period 
who said specifically that the deportations were being used to create a labor shortage that would then be filled um, by the Bracero program. When the H-2A program started to grow, we saw exactly the same thing happen. Um, in fact, the number of people brought to um, the U.S. under the um, Bracero program last year, I mean, under the H-2A program last year, 257,000 people. Um, well, last year, the U.S. deported about 275,000 people. So the numbers are almost the same, and they track each other. Um, and in fact, what the, um, what the enforcement of immigration law in this way does is it does create a labor shortage and then growers complain about it. They do this all the time. They complain that the border is being tightened and that it's cutting off their supply of undocumented people and therefore they need um, the H-2A program to replace um, that workforce. And sometimes the replacement is very direct. Um, 10 years ago, uh, the immigration authorities uh, forced the Gebers Apple Company in central Washington to fire its entire undocumented workforce of 550 workers and then to bring in um, H-2A workers to replace them from Mexico and Jamaica. And since then, um, Gebers has had an H-2A workforce. And this year, again, um, that workforce is the workforce where we saw two people um, get sick and die from the coronavirus because of the housing conditions in which they were kept. But it's a, it's a, a direct replacement sometimes, and sometimes it's simply beefing up the enforcement in rural areas where against farm workers who are undocumented, and then growers, of course, know that they can use the H-2A program to bring in workers, and, and they do, saying, of course, that they have no workforce available to them any longer. So that's an important link to make between the expansion of the H-2A program and deportations. The data given in the report really shows just how direct this relationship is, and it was one of the more surprising things that I took away. Uh, now, beyond the historical context and wider policy analysis that the report includes, it also features many personal testimonies from farm workers whose own stories living and working within the H-2A program are featured. Is there one that you'd like to share uh, that you feel highlights the experience of this program on people's lives? Well, yes, there is. I, I think of a, a, a man named um, Onesto Silva, who worked as a H-2A worker in the state of Washington. He was contracted in Mexico and by a company called Sarbanon Farms that belongs to the Munger family in Delano. And at first, um, they brought him in to uh, work in the blueberry fields, their blueberry fields around Delano in the Central Valley. And then they sent him to a farm that the company had started up near the Canadian border in Washington state. Um, actually, the, the company didn't really have permission to transfer the workers that way. And one of the things that happened to these workers once they got to Canada was that they discovered really that their H-2A visas had already expired, which obviously did not concern the company because the company just sent them up to Washington. In Washington, though, um, the conditions that the workers had been complaining about earlier in California um, became much worse. They were already complaining, for instance, that the food that they were um, being given. And remember that H-2A workers are kept isolated from the towns. Um, they generally live in these barracks on the growers' property behind fences. And so even to get into town, obviously, they have to get a ride. They're not coming here in their own cars. They're being brought. And so um, they are 
oftentimes supplied food, which they have to pay for um, by the grower that they're working for. So these workers, they had a lot of complaints about the quality of the food and the quality of the housing. When they got to Washington state, those complaints um, increased quite a bit. You know, they said the food was really lousy, um, that the company wouldn't even allow them to bring the food into the field so that they could eat something on their break times, that there were these kind of unreasonable and arbitrary rules. Um, that year, there were a lot of forest fires in Canada, right across the border, and the smoke from those fires blew south across the border. And so workers were working in 90 um, and 100 degree heat in the middle of this smoke. And Onesto Silva um, began to feel sick as a result of this. And so he went to his foreman and asked his foreman if he could go back to the barracks and rest instead of continuing to work, that he was feeling dizzy. And the foreman said no, but he was really not feeling well at all. And so he went back to the barracks anyway. And the foreman went back to the barracks after him and told him, you must come to work. You must get out of, you know, stop lying down in your bed and, and get up and, and go back to work. And, um, and so he did. And then he collapsed in the field. Um, the other workers around him were extremely concerned and they were able to um, find a, a means by which he was trans transported to the uh, clinic in the town that was nearby. They saw that Onesto Silva was in really bad shape. They sent him to um, Harborview Hospital in Seattle and he died. So the rest of the workers um, were very upset about this and about 70 of those workers um, decided that they would refuse to work in order to force the company to tell them, first of all, what had happened to Onesto and why, and to get some you know, response from the company about this, this man who had died, and also to resolve the problems that they had been complaining about. Um, what the company did was said, um, you're not here for vacation, you're here to work. If you don't work, want to work, get out. The company fired them all and then just sort of shoved them out the gate of the ranch into the road running outside the ranch. Unfortunately, the workers were able to get in touch with the new union for farm workers in Washington called Familias Unidas por la Justicia. Um, they were able to find a vacant piece of land nearby where workers were able to sort of set up some tents and, and to live while they were involved in this protest against the company. But first of all, once they were protesting, they no longer were earning any money. And you know these were workers who were at the margin to begin with, but also um, once the company fired them, they no longer um, qualified for that H1, H2A visa. And so they became deportable. And both because of the economic pressure on them that they you know, couldn't stay in the US without being able to work. And because they lost their visa, um, they essentially um, had to return to Mexico. So being deported became the punishment and the penalty on them for organizing and protesting. And this is something that was common during the Bracero program. And it's something that happens to workers when they protest under the H-2A program as well. So are, are there other structural barriers to workers organizing um, under this program for better conditions? I and mean, the, the case you just laid out, I think uh, is really indicative of the tough position that they're in. And even when something extreme like that happens, um, they're, they're left with 
really no options. Um, but just basically, what are some of the other barriers um, to them organizing? Well, first of all, aside from California and Hawaii, the farm workers have no legal right, legally protected right to organize unions. Farm workers were, as a whole were written out of the federal legislation that set up the process for workers to have union elections and to organize unions in the 1930s. So already um, workers who organize, farm workers who organize in Washington or Oregon or Georgia or wherever are organizing in an environment in which the law does not protect them. If a company fires a worker um, for organizing, the worker can't go down to a local federal or state agency and file a complaint and say, hey, I was illegally fired for my union sympathy, which you might be able to do if you're working in the private sector in a city in another kind of job. Um, so already there's no legal protection um, for that. And then you add on to that what happened to the people who were protesting at Sarbanon Farms when Onesto died, that, um, that once you lose, once you are the grower fires you, you lose the visa and therefore you're essentially deported. Um, but the third element of that is the blacklist. And that is that um, growers are legally entitled to not hire in an organized way, rehire for the following season, people who they have fired. So they can send instructions to the recruiters and to the labor contractors who do the hiring in Mexico and send them a list of people that these people are troublemakers. And it's not just even protests or trying to organize a union. It gets down to the place, and I've seen the blacklist um, for Manpower of America, Manpower of the Americas, for instance, had a blacklist, a computer printout that was you know, two inches thick. And, and it, would, it would specify the reasons why workers were not what was called eligible for rehire, was what called the eligibility for rehire report. And so it had the lists of workers and for any worker who was ineligible, it would list the reason. And you would get reasons like works too slow or um, the bad attitude, you know, so that it's not just a, um, a punishment for organizing, it's a labor discipline vehicle um, that allows the grower to put pressure on workers. And of course, the way the law is written in that certification that the Department of Labor gives to a grower that allows them to get the H-2A visas to bring people in, um, the growers are allowed to put in there, for instance, production quotas, so that workers who don't work fast enough are um, under the terms of that contract and under the terms of that certification, the grower can legally fire them and send them back to Mexico. Um, well, returning to the, the impact the pandemic has had, um, obviously all farmers have been impacted, but what is specifically the impact of COVID on H-2A workers been? So have they received any protections or been included in any government relief programs? Uh, no, they have not. Um, so all the the government relief programs, first of all, um, have immigration status requirements, basically, so that if you are undocumented, for instance, you cannot get the relief package that was um, made available to people under the CARES Act um, back last spring. Um, not only 
the individual person who's undocumented, but even a family member who is has a visa or is even a citizen cannot could not get that two thousand um, dollars if they're a member of a family with uh, somebody who has who doesn't have papers. But H two A workers were also ineligible under that rule, um, and that had the impact essentially of forcing people to work because people could not survive economically without working. How do you pay the rent? How do you buy food for your family? Um, so absent that kind of relief, um, people were forced to work. Um, for H-2A workers, obviously people were in the US to work and could be required to work regardless and regardless of how dangerous it was. Um, farm worker communities over the course of the pandemic have become concentration areas for the virus. So you see very high rates of infection in, for instance, the rural counties of California in the San Joaquin Valley. And the reasons for that are not really hard to figure out. Um, first of all, people's living conditions generally force people to live at very close quarters with each other because rents are high, wages are low, people double up, families double up in order to be able to pay the rent, which means that you have people living in very close quarters. If somebody gets sick, it's easy for that person to infect other people. Um, maintaining that social distancing is very difficult. And the same goes for um, going to and from work. People travel to and from work, either packed into private cars or on buses provided by labor contractors and growers. Now, some of the growers, and some of the labor contractors who do have some concern for workers will do things like say, well, okay, only one worker can sit in a bench seat and we're gonna put plastic dividers between the seats to keep you know, some distance between people. But I would say that that's the exception rather than the rule. In general, um, people are very close to each other and that applies very much to H2A workers who are living in this congregate housing to begin with and then are traveling to work um, very close together. Um, and the state and the federal government have been willing to ignore the dangers. And Washington state was one place where um, there was a big controversy about that because under the pressure, especially from Familias Unidas, Por la Justicia, this new union, but labor people in general in Washington, um, Washington was forced to engage in a process of, of setting up regulations for H-2A workers. And this process started right before the pandemic. So when the pandemic started, these organizations began telling the state, well, you have to stop growers from using this kind of housing. Growers have to put fewer people into those barracks and they have to spread people out more. And the growers of course complained that this was gonna cost them an enormous amount of money because they would have to build new housing for the workers that they hoped to bring in. And it was gonna to be too expensive. So, and, and there were even um, epidemiologists at the University of Washington who told the state of Washington that this kind of congregate housing is dangerous. You know, public health authorities in the county said the same thing. Nevertheless, um, the State Department of Health and the State Department of Labor and Industries in Washington ruled that putting workers into these rooms where there were four workers to a room and two sets of bunk beds um, was okay so long as workers were only working in groups of 15 at a time. Uh, the logic, I guess, being that, you know, 
in a pot of 15 people that you could limit the infection to 15 people if somebody got sick, but you weren't really eliminating the condition that might cause the infection to spread um, to begin with. So, you know, this is, why did the state of Washington come up with this rule? Essentially because of the pressure of growers. Growers have a lot of political power in um, agriculture-based, you know, in, in states with agriculture-heavy economies like Washington or like California. It's like California. We don't have a rule in California that prohibits congregate housing for H-2A workers despite the pandemic. Um, and, the, and the reason for that is pretty simple. And that is that um, it's expensive and growers are obligated under the rules of the program to provide housing, but they wanna provide it at the lowest cost that they have to pay. And if workers pay the price for that by getting infected and dying, well, and so be it. So on top of the historical um, context that the report provides, um, towards the end, it turns to sort of the central question um, where the future direction of immigration policy is headed. So there is this line, uh, restoring the family preference system and halting or restricting the H-2A program are two of the most important decisions that will face the incoming administration in regards to the direction of U.S. immigration policy. Um, now, uh, there's also the, there was the Farm, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act of 2019, which essentially tied legalization for undocumented farm workers and guest worker programs together. This compromise bill would guarantee growers a labor supply at a price they want to pay, while at the same time providing a pathway to legal residence for many undocumented farm workers. And when this bill was introduced, uh, it passed the House and then died in the Senate. So now with a new, a new Congress, a new president, um, has there been a signal from the Biden administration on where it will head? Well, the Biden administration has done some very good things um, since coming into office. Um, one thing they did for H-2A workers, for instance, where Trump had tried to invoke rules that would have led to slashing the wages for H-2A workers, you know, one of the first things that Biden did on his first day in office was to um, get rid of those um, Trump rulings. Um, so that was good, and it showed some concern, I think, for the welfare of those workers themselves. Um, and then Biden also um, said that he would introduce an immigration reform bill that would provide legal status to undocumented people. Um, 11 million people in the, in the U.S., that would have a big impact on farm workers because of that two and a half million people working in farm labor in the U.S., over half of those folks have no papers. And in California, that percentage is even higher. So clearly, a legalization program would benefit um, those people who don't have um, papers, hopefully, with some reasonable rules attached to it so that people don't have to wait 15 or 20 years to get legal status. But you know, according to Biden's proposal, it, it sounded like a, a, a version of the amnesty bill that passed in 1986. That being said, however, um, Biden said some other things that were more contradictory. Um, so he said that he wanted to, on the one hand, protect family-based immigration and employment-based immigration putting into the same pot, essentially, two systems which, especially in terms of farm workers, are really diametrically opposed to each other. You cannot have an emphasis on family reunification for farm worker families and at the same time allow growers 
to expand the use of the H-2A program to replace the workers in those families with people who are being brought in um, from Mexico and other places. Um, and that is exactly what the history is. In fact, you know, the whole family preference system was put in place by the activists of the day, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and Ernesto Galarza, who wanted to replace the Bracero program with a system of immigration that benefited families. That's why this report says that the Biden administration has to choose who's, who is going to speak the loudest here, whose interests are going to be served. The farm worker families who are doing the work now in the, during the pandemic of providing this country with the food that it needs to eat, or growers whose basic interest is basically having a labor supply that is as low cost as possible. Um, so I think that that is the choice. And in fact, that's, I think, why we wrote this report to begin with, is to highlight this watershed, because I think we are at a watershed moment in immigration policy and in the welfare of farm workers. And the administration and Congress could do something very, very good for farm workers here. It could really improve people's lives quite a lot. It could help people get legal status, enforce their labor rights, make it easier for people to organize unions, help to stabilize families, provide people with the social benefits that families need to survive, and make it possible for people to have a decent living as farm workers in the rural areas of this country. Or it can treat the people who do this work as simply being exchangeable, interchangeable work people who would be brought in to do the work and then sent away somewhere when they don't. Not only would that be unfair and a real mistreatment of those people actually brought in to do the work, and we have seen the record of it here in this country, but what it would also do is for the farm worker families who are living here in the United States, it would condemn people to poverty. It would condemn people to um, a status that people might live in for very prolonged periods of time without um, adequate legal status. It would make it more difficult for them to bring in their families to, to unite them here. And it would also drastically affect um, the economies of those families, making it more difficult for them to survive. Um, if growers need a labor supply and farm worker families are able to bring their relatives from Mexico or the Philippines or Jamaica or wherever on visas that give people the ability to live normal lives here in the United States, residence visas or so-called green cards, then growers can offer those people jobs at a reasonable wage and everybody needs to work. And I'm sure the growers will get a workforce. It might not be as cheap as they wanna pay. Hopefully not, because after all those workers have some needs here, here too, but it would give workers a legal status that would, that essentially wouldn't make them exactly equal with, because we do have this sort of anti-immigrant atmosphere in this country. So even people with a green card and a residence visa don't have the same rights as somebody who is a citizen, but it would be a far better situation for people than um, having to come to work as an H-2A worker and then be sent back to Mexico at the end of the harvest or trying to survive here as a farm, as a farm worker in that kind of a context. So again, that was David Bacon um, discussing his recently released report, Dignity or Exploitation, What Future for Farmworker Families in the United States. 
Uh, I hope that everyone enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. Again, I highly recommend that listeners take a look at the report. Uh, it can be found on the Oakland Institute website as well as our social media. Again, it just provides the historical context to really understand today's immigration debate, as well as amplifying individual testimonies to show firsthand how these policies impact people's lives. Uh, as noted, David is also a widely published photojournalist, so the report is full of images that are not to be missed, uh, which obviously cannot be conveyed through the podcast. Uh, in the episode description, you will find a link to the report and to David's website. Uh, be sure to subscribe uh, to his newsletter as well as the Oakland Institute Reporter Newsletter if you have not already. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.